Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Just call us the Sumerian Salvage Company. It's episode 320 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and I realized it's been a while since I've talked about any indie comics on the show, and I just happened to be contacted about one called The Eighth from writer Adam Lawson, which is a really, really neat book. So I thought, you know, why don't we have Adam Lawson come on here and talk about his campaign from Indiegogo and talk about the eighth and talk about this story of ancient Sumerian armor and trying to change the world or destroy it. I mean, maybe we'll ask Adam about that and a lot more about this book. So we'll talk to him coming up here shortly. We'll also talk about the last days of American crime from Netflix, which you saw the Rotten Tomatoes score. <laughs> You'll see if maybe I agree with that Rotten Tomatoes score. We also have the PlayStation 5 reveal. Yeah, I'm going to be talking about some of the trailers, talk about, you know, what I think of the new console, and maybe, you know, gab a little bit about the possible price. And yeah, the Hartley Sawyer situation, going to talk about that as well. But before we move on to what we're reading, actually, I have something a little bit special for you. Our friends at Cereal Box went ahead and sent over a clip of... Just Marvel's Jessica Jones playing with fire their new audio drama series where you can actually listen to it or you can read it, whatever you want to do. That's what Serial Box does. This new Jessica Jones story, really, really amazing. And you want to know how good action can be in an audio setting? Just check this out for yourself. A scene from Marvel's Jessica Jones playing with fire. Take a listen to this. He charged her, moving from zero to impact with a speed she hadn't expected. She sidestepped, flipped into a crouch, swept a leg out, and caught him at the ankle as he barreled past. He lost balance and slammed shoulder first into the wall. The impact set the server shelves rattling. Viscos righted himself with ease. She grabbed the nearest rack for leverage and hurled herself onto him, looping carbon fiber grappling wire around his neck, attempting to cut off his air supply. His arms twisted backwards, shoulders rotating at unnatural angles, and his hands gripped her wrists with vice-like force. A searing-like white phosphorus burned up her skin, into her head, demanding she let go to make it stop. But pain was temporary. Pain was familiar. As her old instructors drilled into her, pain meant she was still alive. Narration there by Frida Wolf and Marvel's Jessica Jones playing with fire available right now on the Serial Box app and SerialBox.com. And yeah, the first four episodes, amazing. Going to want to go check those out for yourself. Right now, we're going to be checking on some comics. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is writer Christopher Hastings, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Whether you're dragging out that long box to do some bagging and boarding or just firing up the laptop, whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And I was so happy to be able to go back to this one for a second issue. It's Join the Future number two from Aftershock Comics and our buddy writer Zach Kaplan, Peter Kowalski on the art, Brad Simpson on the colors, and Hassan Osmante Oalu on the letters. Now, things actually pick up right after. Spoiler if you haven't read the first issue, by the way. 
So this is a little bit of a spoiler for anybody that hasn't read issue one. Ready, go. This picks up right after Clementine's brother Owen is shot. And this, after that, it doesn't really let up for several pages after that. So much happens that is a real turning point for this story in the early going. I mean, we're only on the second issue. And this issue, second issue, is a major turning point in the story from where we were at in issue one. As a matter of fact, how Clementine reacts to these events in the early pages here is very interesting. And given where her head was at in the first issue is even more interesting as far as I'm concerned. Now, the reaction to what she wants to do is understandably predictable. And when you read the book, you'll understand why. And I say predictable, not in a bad way. I say it in that you almost couldn't write it any other way because you're trying to make it true to what the situation would be and the people that are surrounding it. And you had to do it that way. But thanks to the character building that was done by Zach and company in the first issue, the intrigue is there to follow Clementine on this new path. See, they the groundwork was laid so well in the first issue for her character that once this happens in the second issue and the response to that, it makes you rally around her even more. So you have to understand how the long-form storytelling comes into play here because that is exactly what's happened. It's not just one something happens in an issue and, yeah, it'll drive the story forward. But it's it's only going to be something that you're going to you know think back to for for you know just a minute and be like oh so that's what they were doing, no no this was actually something tangible that's going to carry out throughout the rest of the story that was built from issue one and is going to linger throughout probably the rest of at least this first arc anyway or depending on how things go and how much this story continues so I think that that was a brilliant job done and and I got to tell you Kowalski's art is just spot on. We don't really get to see as much of the push and pull from the from the future side and the and the not so future side is the best way I could put it in this issue we're we're, we're in the we're in the woods a lot. Basically I can tell you but there's one particular point in this book where there's something massive on the page and I do mean massive and boy do you really get a sense of the scale of what's happening, what's going on, and what you're looking at just because of how it's presented in the art, in Kowalski's art? It is just phenomenal. Zach Kaplan, for me, never disappoints. I'm always happy when I read something that he's written. He just he has a way to be able to tell such unique stories from such personal and meaningful and unique perspectives. I'm just, I, I could not wait for this. This was one of those books that, you know, because of the pandemic got delayed. And I'm like, when do I finally get to rejoin the future number two? And I'm glad that it is going to be finally in your hands as well. This, but throw this one in your pull box and don't stop until they do, because you're going to want to, you're going to want to get this one every time that it comes out. And speaking of number twos, this is actually a second volume that we'll be talking about. It's Faithless Volume 2, Number 1, from Boom Studios. Of course, it's written by Brian Azzarello, Maria Lovett on the art, and Amworld Design on the letters. 
And this is a very erotic story. If you remember my my review of the earlier issue of Faith from Volume 1, this is a magical erotic story that, that definitely will it, it'll, it'll make your eyes pop. It more the, on more than one occasion for more than one reason, I can tell you that much right now. So definitely for mature readers, this one. And if we're picking up on the second arc here, Faith, who is our main character, of course, really taken off her, her, her career, basically, is really taken off. Her art's creating a lot of intrigue and a lot of buzz in all the right places. Here's the problem, though. She's having a little bit of a block right now. All the great ones do, though, right? And, of course, Poppy, who is her lover, is not there to help be an inspiration. But Luis is there, or Luis, or however you want to pronounce that name, or Louis, because maybe he's French, but he's kind of the devil, too. So then there's that. He's there to help her at least get the word out, if nothing else. But while in the first arc we had the intriguing characters of Poppy and Luis, now we have Solomon in the mix. And how he factors in to what happens next in the story, to me, is the most intriguing thing, especially because of something that happens in this story. Now, do you kind of see it coming? I guess I kind of did, but then you're not really sure it's actually going to happen, and when it does, you you can't help but wonder how much of an impact this is going to make and how much this could be a little bit more complicated than we think it is on the surface. And that will make... Again, this is me trying to be spoiler-free here. So when you read it, you'll understand, and you'll go, oh, maybe that is a little bit deeper than I think it is. There's also something very odd that happens toward the end of the issue that leaves a kind of a big question as to whether or not Faith's becoming more powerful or some power is taking her over or something screwy's going on or this is some sort of a punishment. It's just very interesting to see how it's presented out of nowhere. And this story kind of does that sometimes, where it'll just give you something out of nowhere to think about. And then, yeah, it will explain it at some point. And and that's something that I think we're definitely going to be banking on for future issues here. But this is the same steamy and just, just really just eye-popping story that I remember from volume one, this was a very easy continuation for anybody that read that first volume, all the issues. Yeah, you'll have no trouble picking up this. As a matter of fact, you could probably pick up right here if you wanted to without reading volume one. You're going to want to after you're done with this first issue. But this is certainly considered a jumping on point, I would say. So if you wanted to jump on here, you absolutely could do that. And I do think that you should because this there's just something about this book that's just so intriguing. It's just, it makes you demand to read it, basically, is it for lack of a better way of putting it. it there's just so much, you don't really know what's going to happen next in a good way, right? Because you, you're kind of left of, okay, so there is some shock value to this, but there's also this intertwined story that just you really want to follow because you feel like if you look away for a second, you're not going to remember where you were, what was going on. And you're going to reread this probably more than once so you can really grasp what's happening in the story. So another job well done by everybody involved. And it's just, it's just beautiful artwork too. It really is. It, 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 
there is some simplicity to it. And then you get this all of a sudden just in your face, complex, so many moving parts in front of you. This book shifts gears so beautifully in the pages. It's just unbelievable. So make sure you're getting Faith, Volume 2, Number 1, as well when you're going out to get Join the Future, Number 2. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, time to talk about The Last Days of American Crime, the latest Netflix movie will be our subject next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Amelia Jones from Netflix's Rock and Key, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You know, I realize it's been a while since we've talked about a movie on the show, so I decided to go ahead and check out The Last Days of American Crime from Netflix, which has actually gotten a very rare score from critics on Rotten Tomatoes. But, you know, we don't talk about Rotten Tomatoes scores on here, but we will talk about... This movie, one of the reasons is, in case you didn't know, it's actually based on a graphic novel from Rick Remender and Greg Tocchini from Radical Publishing several years ago. Maybe you read the book, maybe you didn't. But, you know, for just for these purposes, this review is going to be about just the movie itself. And there will be a ton of spoilers here, by the way. So this isn't going to be a long review. One of the reasons is because I'm not going to make the same mistake that the movie did. This movie did not need to be at all two and a half hours. Not at all. I mean, the, the, the story itself, the concept, is, is not a bad one. Basically, the government has discovered a signal that can suppress the thing in your brain that makes you want to do bad things. So the crime would just be not a thing anymore. It just would not happen anymore. The, the unlawful acts would not be able to be committed. So they're going to broadcast a signal, and that would end crime for those who don't have an implant in their heads. So there's that. So the concept is good enough. We also follow the character of Graham Brick, who is a career bank robber. He and his brother's brother's going to prison. So he, you know, he tells he's the good big brother, right? He's like, keep your head down, things like that. And it turns out his brother dies in prison. And that sets him on a really bad path. And then he meets a woman named Shelly Dupree. And, excuse me, Shelby Dupree. And, you know, they hook up in the bar, right? And then it turns out it was, wasn't all that he thought it was because she is engaged to a man named Kevin Cash, who is basically part of a big crime family who's now no longer going to be a crime family. They're going to turn legit because of the whole signal thing. They got out ahead of it. And everybody's got their own issues in this movie. And and that's the gist of it. And they want to pull, pull one big job to basically steal money from the government right before the signal's turned on. And everybody ends up screwing each other over. Everybody's got their own angle. Everybody's got their own reason for doing what they want to do. And it's just, there's just so much that this movie could have been that it just wasn't. They spend so much time on the relationship between Brick and Shelby, which I don't really feel like they ever really earned. I mean, yeah, they liked to have sex with each other, sure. Yeah, he saved her a time or two. There's no doubt about it. But I never got how they made that connection, right? You know, even in action movies, right, you see, you know, love story angles and things like that, but you kind of see how they get there, right? You kind of see how these two could fall for each other, right? Whereas in the case of Brick and Shelby, I don't see it. I just don't. I don't understand how they make 
that connection, unless it was just based on physical attraction, I don't get it. I will say that the character of Kevin Cash was annoying as hell, but, but at the same time, that was the character. He's the younger brother in the crime family that nobody ever took seriously. He's the screw up. He wanted to be the one that had the family legacy when all was said and done and pulled off the last big crime so he could be big man on campus. And then it tur- and then as it turns out at the end where you find out that that Cash actually kills Brick's brother in prison instead of of somebody that just you know, did time with him and was buddies with him. He's like, let's do this one for Rory. Let's let's do this in Rory's name. And as it turns out, well, he's the one that killed Rory in the first place. And then he's somehow immune to the signal because he's figured out a way to beat it. So you paint him as this idiot the entire movie. And then all of a sudden, he he's figured out a way to beat this signal when there's supposed to be no way to beat the signal. The, the movie just contradicts the hell out of itself. And then it turns out Shelby's got a sister and she's working with the FBI. So is she going to screw them over or not screw them over? Is she going to screw the FBI over? And, and the and the cops are crooked as hell in this movie, which, you know, that that's something that, that, that I wasn't really surprised to see in this particular sense. But speaking of the cops, there was this one particular officer named Sawyer. And you keep they keep coming back to him, right? So you think that this Officer Sawyer, something's going to happen with him, right? He's going to play some sort of a, of a role at the end of this movie, or at least some point in the movie. And then you think he's going to, right? Because he ends up, you know, catching Shelby inside of, of the headquarters where the signal is, and, she, and she's clearly doing stuff to mess it up. This building is under siege. And you see them get into it, right? And she ends up eventually killing him. But the thing is, is that... At no point during this movie did you make that character matter when the whole time you were acting like you were going to make it matter. Then you just never did anything with him. It was just, it was such wasted buildup. This movie was filled with so much wasted time. And that was one of the frustrating things. Now, the character of Graham Brick was a good character. Not questioning that at all. He was certainly a good character. He was tough as nails. It was kind of a, you know, bargain basement John McClane sort of situation, even though he was a criminal, obviously not a not a police officer or anything like that. So he he was, you know, always kind of the bad guy that you, you maybe want to root for at the end. If anything, I had more of a want to root for his 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 driver, his wheelman in Ross King. Yeah, that was that was the guy that I was upset about getting killed in this movie by douchebag Kevin Cash. So it just, this movie could have been so many things The the concept was good. You don't really get to see a lot of the unrest in the city because of this whole signal thing and what that last week of crime would be like. I didn't want it to be like the purge either. I don't, I don't want you to get me wrong. I don't want it, I didn't want a purge movie out of this. What I wanted was the delicate balance between the two things, what's going on in the society around them and what's going on with this story with 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 Graham and Cash and Shelby. And if you would have just earned that relationship between Brick and Shelby a little bit more, you would have had me. But it, but it's like they just got thrown together and, oh, well, like every time they had sex, the relationship just went deeper and deeper. And, and I'm just like, really, that's all it took, huh? 
And, and, and hey, maybe you're saying sometimes that is all it takes. But the, but then you at the end of the movie, you, you act like they have this deep and meaningful connection together. And maybe they bonded over a couple of, of things, right? You know, maybe they both don't have anybody in the world anymore. They don't trust people. Maybe they bond over something like that. But I never felt at any point that they earned that relationship. And you always knew, and, and Graham always went back to the whole, you're playing both sides thing, right? That's Brick, you, you hear him say that like a thousand times during this movie. So then you get the impression, okay, so she cares more about him than he does about her. And then you see him, you know, obviously save her several times. And the, and the action wasn't even good enough in this movie to make up for the bad storytelling. There were some cool there were some cool scenes in there. I'm not going to say there weren't like when they were doing the car chase, that was a cool scene. You know that maybe the twist where Cash turns on on Brick and tells me he kills his brother, maybe that was a good twist. But just this movie did not make up for the fact that it had some pretty bad storytelling in it throughout and it was way longer. I mean, long shot longer than it should have been. So, Last Days of American Crime, I, I don't give too many bad ratings. I like to find something I like in everything. And while there were a couple of good action scenes, everything else just really, really fell short for me. So, I, I was kind of disappointed in The Last Days of American Crime. But if you liked it, hey, let me know. Tell me why. Because you might be one of the only ones that actually did, whether you whether it be a critic or a fan. So, let me know what you thought of it if you disagree. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of The Last Days of American Crime up next. Yeah, there's some nerd news to talk about, and some of it's not very good either. We'll talk about it next. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Zach Kaplan, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. The future of console gaming just took another step forward. It's time for nerd news. And, yep, it was late Thursday night, or actually on Thursday just in general, that we finally got the reveal of the PS5 console and a whole mess of trailers for the upcoming console that's supposed to be dropping in the holiday this year. Now, here's the deal. I'm not going to talk about all the trailers. I'm not going to talk. I've already talked about the specs in a past show. Not going to do that again either. I'm going to pick out four trailers that stood out to me. But first, the look, the design of the console, I, I like it. I mean, it's not. I mean, it, it looks like a three-ring binder trying to eat a router. But other than that, I mean, it looks fine. The only problem I think it's white though. White can, I mean, if you ever owned a white car, it can get dirty pretty quickly, especially that controller, the DualSense controller. Yeah, I'm thinking you're going to have to clean that sucker a lot because it's going to get pretty dirty. That's, I mean, I mean, that's nitpicking, and I don't really care one way or another as long as it works the way it's supposed to. I'm just saying just be prepared to clean that sucker more often than you'd like. And, yeah, you've got the wireless headset, and that looks cool, and then you've got the HD camera, which, you know, I guess you know, it makes perfect sense. It's just specs that didn't really shock me because you already know, you've already got your mind made up to whether it was more powerful or not than the Xbox One X. So, I mean, it's it's almost like, a, you know, just pick which one you like and run with it, right? So as far as the trailers are concerned, I got to start off by talking about Spider-Man Miles Morales. And I think that people were shocked when they saw that because you almost felt it was like it was never going to be real, right? But this is a long long time coming and the game looks gorgeous it actually looks like even a step up from the spider-man ps4 game obviously because this is a ps5 engine and it's gonna look a little bit better 
but it, it it's it, it almost feels more high tech a little bit too doesn't it when you see some of the some of the action sequences in the trailer and and you you can almost hear Peter kind of passing the torch in the beginning of the trailer there and I love the suit reveal for for Miles in the very very beginning that was such a powerful sequence such powerful scene in the beginning of that trailer this one going to be coming in the holiday of 2020 as well I'm thinking there's got to be a bundle that's going to be coming for this right so maybe you won't be getting the the white PS5 maybe you'll be getting a Spider-Man version of it. And by the way, you've got you've got either the console with the with the discs or the digital. If you like all digital, I mean that that'll probably save you a few bucks. I'm still a physical disc person, so I that's the one I would probably lean towards. I wanted to jump back and not forget to talk about that. The most gorgeous game out of all the ones that were revealed in my opinion has to be Horizon 2 Forbidden West. And Horizon Zero Dawn, I mean this is basically a sequel to that. When that game was first revealed at E3, what seems like forever ago, it was gorgeous then. But seeing it in this new PS5 engine was just so breathtaking. And all and it, it almost felt like I was watching a, a nature movie in the very beginning of the trailer. It was a breathtaking beginning of the trailer. And then things get a little bit dystopian. And, you know, the, it seems like the theme of this is going to be very environmental, very save the planet, very save the animals kind of thing, and you're going to cover a lot of ground, it looks like, in Horizon 2 Forbidden West. It looks like the you want to talk about open world? This seems very, very open world to me. So it, does, it almost doesn't get more open world than what this game is portraying. And again, you've got these larger-than-life just beings, for the lack of a better way of putting it, that are just incredible. And you kind of see... Who the big bad's going to be, or the big bads, I should say. Looks like there's a tribe there that's going to be trying to mess up the planet, mess up the environment, and, and certainly it seems like take control of these animal creatures, right? So should be very interesting to see what's going to be going on with that. Didn't look like, I didn't see a release date on that one, so hopefully I'll be able to find that out. Hitman 3 is coming as well in January of 2021 but it looks like this could actually be the final installment of the hitman series because death awaits you know that kind of kind of says it all right but you know 47 still gets the drop on pretty much everybody in this trailer right i don't know if that was diana that we saw i don't think it was because she's supposed to be gone right so either way i mean i a new hitman game sign me up every time for one of those, always been one of my favorite games since its inception. What what was it like? Twenty years ago was the first Hitman game. I, it was just, it's been a, a winning franchise for me from the very start. I love the Hitman games. Looking forward to this one. And I got to tell you, one that surprised me, the one that jumped out at me, was Ratchet and Clank ripped apart. I mean, you've got dimensions collapsing and uh, like rifts everywhere, and you see them basically jumping from dimension to dimension to dimension. And it, it was just, it was really, really cool to see that. I mean, I was captivated by this trailer from start to finish. And then things get serious when Ratchet and Clank actually get separated in the trailer. There's like that gasp moment, right? And then we actually meet a new female character in the mix as well. So, and I didn't say release date on this one either, but I mean, if you're a Ratchet and Clank fan, you've got to be psyched about what you saw 
from this trailer. And there were several new games that were announced as well. Some others that had been announced at E3 last year that we got new trailers for with the PS5 engine this time around. I'll try and post some of them at downandnerdypodcast.com so you can get caught up on all the trailers from the PS5 reveal. The only thing that we did not really get was a price. And I don't know where your ceiling is, but something tells me this is going to be the closest to a thousand bucks we've gotten for an actual console. And I don't know why people are complaining about the the size of it because it doesn't look like it's going to take that take up that much more space or more space at all than your last PlayStation Four console did. So I don't know where that's coming from. But to me, price is a big deal, and I and I almost feel like they didn't reveal the price because. They're worried about the reaction. They were, just, they were just happy that they got a really positive reaction for the reveal and the trailers and everything, and they didn't want to let the price overshadow the moment of what they were bringing out. So that is actually pretty smart. But at the same time, again, you've got to be real careful here because I'm sure the games are going to be a little bit more expensive. Now your console, if this console approaches 1000 there, I've seen the estimates as high as like 1200 that's a tough ask. And I mean, I know that you're you're spending that on a phone anyway, right? For the most part. But again, that's your phone. That that that's something that you that you it's almost like a, a literal and figurative lifeline, right? There's a lot of things that you need your phone for. And I know what you're saying, James, I need a PS5. And, you know, to a certain extent, maybe you do. But at the same time, you know, you keep just being okay with things that you're spending a thousand dollars on at a time, and and suddenly that's going to become the new normal. And I'm not sure I want that to be the new normal. So, you know, let me know what you think of the PS5. You know, I always send the comments on social media here on if you're listening on SoundCloud or whatever. Yeah, drop me a line. Let me know what you think I, because I I don't know. I mean, I st- again, I'm still stuck in the past. I still haven't even gotten my PS4 yet because. Stuff's expensive, man. I got two kids that aren't old enough to really play serious video games yet. So, yeah, I don't know how long it's actually going to be until I get a PS5. Let's see. Maybe I'll get lucky. Here's something that was it was a very uncomfortable story at the beginning of the week. And I, I kind of wondered, am I going to talk about this? Am I not going to talk about this? I, it's been one of the biggest stories of the week. It's been talked about throughout the week. So we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about Hartley Sawyer getting fired from The Flash. This was first reported from The Hollywood Reporter. Look, at this point, if you're a fan of the show or even just a fan of nerd culture, you've seen the story. You've seen the tweets that he sent out that ranged from 20, 2012 to 2014, the ones that I saw anyway. And I'm not going to repeat them. I don't want to repeat them. That's, that's how bad they were. I mean, it dealt with you know sexism and racism and sexual assault and all kinds of other things, and it was just bad. It really, really was. And it's it's interesting to me because and I, I don't want to take this uh, I want to take this a certain direction here because I know what you're saying. You're saying that, that, that well, I'm not saying everybody's saying this, but I've seen this like, okay, so you're you made Ralph Dibney a character that was very immature at the beginning of his tenure, and then you know he matured to the point of, you know, being one of the leaders in the field of Team Flash, right? And he's one of the voices of reason now, or he was anyway, on the team. So now you're firing a guy from 2000, from tweets from 2012, 2014, and maybe he's just not that person anymore. And Hartley Sawyer, actually, he sent out, of course, his own apologies, saying, you know, making no excuses for himself. We've saw statements from uh, Grant Gustin 
saying that he agreed with the with the with the firing. And of course, Eric Wallace gave a very passionate statement as well. So I understand what you're saying about how, you know, you you know, you've got Ralph's redemption story and and it almost mirrors Hartley Sawyer. I don't know Hartley Sawyer. I don't know if Hartley Sawyer is a great dude now or not. And I've praised his work in the past, but that was it was just that. His work. I've only spent maybe 20 minutes with Hartley Sawyer in person, and it, it was in a group setting. You can't really know or judge a person based on being around them for 20 minutes. Okay, so it, it's just, I was stunned by it. I was, I was shocked. I was uncomfortable, quite frankly. I just, I was not okay with what he said in those tweets. And, you know, you could say, oh, dark humor. Okay, well, there's there's dark humor, but there's also a line, you know, and I feel like Hartley crossed that line with more than a couple of those tweets. And your other question is, okay, this was, you know, six years ago at the at the at the latest, right? The only the only thing I will say to that is I'm surprised they didn't know about this already, meaning Warner Brothers and, and the CW, because you know, scrubbing social media, or, or, or I don't mean scrubbing social media, I mean scanning social media for stuff like this before you hire someone or even not too long after you hire someone to see if this is somebody you want to be representing your brand is not a new thing. This is something that's been going on for a while. I'm not saying it was going on in 2012 or even 2014, but in 2016, You'd think that they would make that connection and, and check that out. So it's just interesting to me that that they didn't know this before they hired him. And maybe they did, maybe they didn't. And, you know, I, I have no idea about that. But, you know, Hartley Sawyer was on The Flash for three seasons before these tweets came to light. So, you know, he certainly had three. What if he deleted them, right? What if he deleted all those tweets? Would he still have a job? And should he still have a job? I don't think he should have a job. I think that it was absolutely justified that they fire him for that. This is not the kind of person that you want being a main player on one of your shows. They've even removed him from the banner on social media websites for The Flash. And they just kind of airbrushed him right out of there. So they're serious about kind of, you know, taking him away from the show. And, I mean, you got also, I mean, even though this is a very serious situation and it deals with some real-life stuff, you have to take a step back for a second, too, if you're a fan of the show and say, well, how does this affect the show? Do you write Ralph Dibney out? Do, do you kill him off? Do you recast him? What does this do with Sue Dearborn's character and, and Natalie Dreyfus? What do you do with that? There's a lot of questions that still need to be answered. Now that we're, we've kind of dealt with the Hartley Sawyer situation, he's fired, he's gone, it's done, it's over. As soon as you can take a step back from that, and it doesn't have to be right away. Remember, The Flash isn't even coming back until January of 2021. So it's not like you have to address this right this second as to what you're going to do. But at some point, when when things, when things when the story kind of cools off a little bit and they have a chance to get some perspective of what they're going to do, maybe get in the writer's room or have a meeting, figure out what they're going to do, I actually don't think they recast Ralph Dibney. That's just my gut talking there. I feel like there's a lot of moving on on The Flash right now. You've got, you know, Caitlin going to find herself and her identity now, going off to do her own thing. You've got Cisco who's going off to do his own thing. 
and, and you know, you've still got the whole, you know, mirror master thing that you need to deal with and getting Iris back home. You're going to have to deal with that. But at the same time, Team Flash feels like it's it's almost poised for an overhaul anyway. So I think they'll actually find a way to explain away Ralph Dibney's absence. Maybe you say that, you know, he and Sue had, you know, fell madly in love and they just ran away together and that's that. Maybe you, maybe it's just that simple. So I, I actually don't think we'll see any more from, from Ralph Dibney on The Flash. So let's also talk about the Doom Patrol Season 2 trailer that dropped this week. Of course, the show's going to be back on June the 25th on HBO Max and DC Universe, by the way. So you could clearly tell in the trailer right away, you know, they're dealing with what Niles Calder did in Season 1. And, and now they're dealing with his daughter, Dorothy, who seems to be one of the main themes of this season, along with what Niles did, of course, at the end of Season 1, which I won't spoil for you if you haven't seen the finale yet if you're trying to play catch up there. So I'm not going to do that. But, you know, it's, it's you know, typical in typical Doom Patrol fashion. They're still dealing with their own issues, too. But Rita actually seems to be more comfortable with herself and her abilities, which is something we didn't really see a whole lot of last season. So I think that that's really, really cool that we're going to possibly get that a little bit this season. Now, this is a little bit of a spoiler for the season one finale which I have to talk about in order to talk about this trailer. So this is a little bit of a spoiler if you want to skip ahead a little bit. They're actually still miniaturized and still stuck on Cliff's toy car set. So that's, that's something that we can clearly see coming up that, that's, that is a part of this trailer. But, you know, it seems like this season is going to be just as crazy, just as whacked out as the first one was. You, you know, you hear Niles Calder talk about how, you know, his daughter is, is dangerous and, you know, she could destroy the world and they would be powerless to stop it. We don't really get to see a whole lot of why that is. We only actually get to hear her say one line. So it's not completely clear exactly how much of a threat his daughter is. If she's a threat at all, this could be another ruse by the chief, right? We just don't know until we get in there and we start breaking down this first season. Three episodes, by the way, are going to drop on June the 25th. I love that. I love that they're giving us more than one episode right out of the gate. And I'm thinking that there's probably a reason for that, but we'll have to wait and find out. It's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, talk some indie comics. We'll talk about the 8th with writer Adam Lawson. Up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Lou Diamond Phillips from Fox's Prodigal Son, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. So every now and then I like to tell you about a book that you might not have heard of before. This one's called The Eighths, actually from an Indiegogo campaign from a guy that you might recognize, actually. He's, he's done shows on YouTube. He's part of Geek and Sundry stuff as well. It's writer and director, too, by the way, Adam Lawson. What's up, man? Hey, how you doing? Pretty good, man. Pretty good. Now, like I said, you've written for TV. You've directed TV. Yep. But this is actually your first graphic novel project. So do you feel like you were more excited or nervous about entering the world of comics as a creator for the first time? You know, it's uh, it's interesting to say that, like, I, um, I think that at first I was worried that it was going to be overwritten or the panels were going to be poorly put together. It, it, there's a whole, um, you know, mess of it sort of initial thoughts. But I think because I started it uh, so long ago, it's been a couple of years now, that having been through it, and if you can imagine, issue one, I started it once with a different artist made the whole issue one, paid for it, did the whole thing. Then that artist, you know, circumstances changed in their life. 
and um, they were no longer able to work on the book. And so I started over again with Joran, who's the artist now. So in a way, I'm grateful for that like pre-roll, like a rehearsal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my pocketbook is not thankful for the rehearsal, but me as a creator is thankful. Absolutely, man. Now, given this is your first graphic novel, how did you feel? How did it feel when you first found out you hit that full funding goal on the campaign? I mean, I, I, it was so satisfying because it's been such a haul, right? To get get it out, and you know, the thing about it is also too is like. I, lots of people, when they launch a book, they've prepared the audience for it for months, right, before, so that there's people that are eager and ready and waiting. And I had a great idea to not do that because I had been planning on launching this a little later, but quarantine hit. And I thought, you know what? I now have time because TV production is down. Yep. Maybe this is the right time to do this. So then I just sort of swung for the fences and dove in. And that was kind of the way it worked out. And so um, the satisfaction for it was, is it that you knew what I had made was connecting with people. And that's always the most frightening thing as a creator, right? Is, is if, will people actually like it? And not because you want attention or not because you want to feel like your life has meaning, but because your whole purpose is to make something that resonates with an audience, at least for me. And so to see that past that funding goal, it was just so satisfying. It's like, wait, it is resonating. Strangers who I've never met, hundreds of them have seen the video, looked at the images and said, I'll give you money. I'll buy this thing. And it was really, really satisfying. I remember, you know, when I first launched Escape Tonight, you know, it was a, a network project with lots behind it, but you know, the network didn't believe in the show initially. They said, listen, now, this is things crazy. It's never going to work, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I'll let you fail is what they told me. Mm-hmm. So, and then it has become the longest running, most award-winning show. Yeah. Five and, seasons um, later, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now, 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 everyone else says, oh, we knew all along. But we should all be people. lucky to fail that much, I'll tell you that. <laughs> right? And so it was just, but I remember that first, you know, week and the responses and the thousands and thousands of comments and being there at the premiere and how excited people were. And I just kind of wept because you poured everything into it. I think that that was something that maybe I didn't, that the taste of that is about the sweetest fruit there is. So I would say that that was the feelings. That's that's a lot, man, and 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 I totally understand how you feel that way. So let's tell people about the book a little bit, because when I read this first issue, I mean, it was really, and you cover a lot of ground in this first issue, by the way, for anybody that still wants to jump on board. It's pretty clear that this story was much deeper, like much deeper than just a unique piece of armor. So for anyone that's unfamiliar with the book and the project, give them a quick overview about the story of the eighth. Yeah, so the story of the eighth is about kid named David Wells and his friend Emma Adachi and his other friend Atticus. And he's a math genius living in a small broke town and his family is a small broke family. And he's this math genius, but he, though he can solve equations that no one else in the world can, he can't solve the problem of his depressed life and his, in particular, his brother's bullying, which led to his suicide. And he has this theory, this mathematical theory that you can take nanoparticles, small particles, and that are simply arranged and with an electrical charge, they can become complex. They can be, they can have, they can have a complex arrangement. It'd be like turning a glass of water instead of freezing it and it just becoming a cube of ice, it would become a swan, which is a a, a real scientific thing. And so he's working on this equation and he can't crack it, but then he uncovers this, what he doesn't know at the time is a piece of ancient Sumerian armor at a scavenge, he and his aunt, they have a family pawn shop and they're scavenging a burned down house and they pull this thing out. And he realizes 
that the equation he's been working on, part of that is embedded into this, this piece of the uh, ancient Sumerian armor, and he unlocks it. And what it is, is it is you know, a com- compilation of nanoparticles that he commands with mathematics. And he was right about his equation. He just had made mistakes on his experiment, but with the right tool, it could come to pass. So then he has this burst of power, and he decides, you know what, let me try and control the world, which is what most kids would do who have had tragedy happen to them, right? How can I control no a world that seems out of control, right? I know, you know, I've been a teenager with a, a friend who passed from suicide due to bullying in real life. You know that feeling. And so he decides, let me, let me try and control the world, and I'm going to do that by taking out some of these bullies, except because the powers more than anticipated and his anger is more than anticipated he breaks their spines and puts them in the hospital and they'll never walk again the violence escalates way too far and he tries to develop rules of justice to this but his friend emma wants to just burn everybody she doesn't care and his friend atticus he says no no, no we're going way too far so then david learns that this was the wrong pathway but violence begets more violence, and soon his town is in ruins. More people he loves have been killed, and he and Emma are heading out of town, leaving it in ruins, to figure out what is this armor and what is his place in the world, right? Because it's only a piece of the armor, and what are the other pieces of himself, I think I would say. Now, let's let's talk a little bit more about Emma for a second, because that, that's a character that just jumped right out for me. To me, she's just a main, as much of a main part of the story— as David is. So she's also a source of a major turning point in the, in the story right in this first issue where things kind of sort of start to get out of hand, as you said. So what would you say separates her from David the most character-wise? What separates them is their choice, their reaction to the trauma. He wants to make the world safe. She wants revenge. And that is that choice is the defining choice throughout the rest of the story between them, right? Because there's an unrequited romance between the two of them where she has feelings for him that he doesn't yet have for her. And so, and I think that in many ways, you're right, that this story is every bit as much Emma's story as it is David's. And in fact, without Emma, David's story is flat, right? They're a little bit of each other's foil. And Atticus, who plays kind of a small character in the first issue, he becomes a much, much bigger issue. Uh, sorry, much, much bigger character as the issues progress. And his storyline is, is very different from theirs, right? He's trying to figure out which side of the line of right or wrong will he stand on, right? He comes from a religious family. And so, so with Emma, um, I think what I love so much about her is that, and I think why I think people have, tend to have agreed that maybe she's their favorite character, is that she represents, I think, for m- most of us, the raw feeling that you want revenge, right? You want people to suffer as they have made you suffer. And that's how you can find balance. And so I think that, I think that's why she resonates with us. And I think that's why her and David are together, but at odds with each other. I want to touch on something you, t- you mentioned earlier as far as the art, because I actually didn't know that you had another artist on the project before that. Now, anyone that takes a look at this campaign can see just how amazing the art is. I mean, the raw emotion bursting out of the issue. I don't know how you do that without Jordan Evers. So talk about what that yep. collaborative process has been like between the two of you, especially, you know, kind of picking it up almost in the middle there. Right. So what happened is Joran, I had seen his art on ArtStation and I loved it and I wanted to work with him. 
And I had this idea of wanting to do a comic book with him. So I hired him to be my storyboard artist on Escape the Night. So that way I could pay him studio money. So that way when I asked him to do a comic book for very little, he might, out of my own pocket. Yeah, there you go. Him. Grease the wheels. There you and go. I, Good call. I, I was greasing the wheels, as you say. And so he and I did a lot of storyboarding for television uh, before the comic book began. So he and I had really worked out our creative process and how to assemble a scene and shots and reversals and et cetera, and how to communicate with each other on the way the panels were set up. And so, yeah, and I agree with you that the Joran's work is really what makes this come to life, right? My words maybe give his pictures meaning, but without those pictures, nobody wants to read the words. And he put so much time and love and effort into it. So as far as, you know, and as far as Arbrasco, I read a pretty detailed script, the script, which has a pretty precise definition of what goes on in each panel and how they're laid out. And he and I early on talked about, we always wanted to have the paneling layout be part of the story. That in some of the, that the idea isn't you just putting squares on a page with pictures in them, but the frame of those pictures actually could tell part of the story. So we tried to build the panels in a way that communicated the feeling, whether it was frenetic or when David was first getting the armor on him and he was sort of sinking into it that the panels you know started to sort of fall uh, fall and break away and so it, it's a really a, a miraculous process he gets a script i get roughs back he goes straight to the inks after that he works all digitally and he colors and there's usually a passive notes on each one of those steps and then he and i are just really kind of close in general and so we talk all the time about it and he'll send me thoughts and so he's really my creative partner in the process as well as backboard you know like he helps me go hey Adam, maybe that's too far or this is too little so it's been really great now when you're launching a book this way on an indiegogo campaign you're kind of in a unique situation where you're you're offering so amazing stretch goals and incentives i mean that statue is unbelievable it's still great and you guys still get a, get a chance to get your hands on that but i couldn't help but wonder as i'm looking through these things and I know this would be involved, but I had to ask myself, since you were part of the tabletop show on Geek and Sundry, did you actually think about a tabletop game for the 8th, or would you like to see one done at some point? Yes, absolutely. I, I, I've filmed so many board games being played by celebrities. I love it. I love tabletop. I love that whole experience. And I love Will, obviously. And I think that when I built the comic book and you know, as we were maybe issued two or three into it, my mind, I just started to, to, to think, how could that be a tabletop game? And so I'm really excited about that thought. But at the moment, I can't wait to just get the comic book finished so that I can deliver to people. But yes, uh, a board game would be epic. Totally. I'm just saying, I was, I'm reading this first issue and I'm like, man, this would be a hell of a game. I'm just, it's, it was one of the first things well, that I thought of. Other than it being well, a good book, I see? thought, man, this would be a hell of a game. <laughs> well, what do you see that what would, you, what would you see that game being in your mind well I what mean, would be your pitch well first of all you've got the mathematical aspect of it too i, I think right. you, you, you could work that in pretty easily and then you know yep. you, the, the discovering the armor thing and it's almost like a it's almost like a D type of situation of okay how is the armor going to react based on like what your role is sort of thing because it's very un, it's very volatile it's very unpredictable in the early going anyway right. And the learning yeah. process, and, and maybe it becomes less volatile as you sort of level up in the game as it is. And like you said, the ice cube suddenly starts to become more like a swan. Or it's like a green lantern learning how to use their ring for the first time sort of thing. So, And I could see that progressing as it goes. And you could even make it multiplayer because you could have David, you could have Emma in there, you could have Atticus. And I know that there's going to be other characters that come into play later on. I just It forms for me as it goes, just like the comic 
does as far as I'm concerned. I, I love that you said that. I, what I'd always thought about the game, you tell me if you like this thought, was that uh, you could play the game uh, and each person took on a different role, whether you're Emma, David, Atticus, there's two other characters. You're going to meet Yam and the, the professor. Yam as in literally the son, one of the sons of Noah. And so there's these five characters and you play, you can play as each of the five characters and they all have a different way to win the game because they all want something different in the story. They all have a different connection to this armor. And they also, spoiler alert, Emma gets some piece of ancient Sumerian weaponry as well. Mm-hmm. And so does Atticus. And Yam is obviously ancient and powerful. And so does this professor. So they all have, they have a look very different and unique once they get their, their piece of the pie, if you will. And so you could all, you could all play it with a different objective. That was my initial thought with it. So we will see if that's what it becomes. I mean, obviously the comic is going to be something that people are going to want to jump into first. And I want to actually ask you, because you've teased a lot of pages on both on social media and on the campaign page, which is amazing. I like the trailer that you put out as well. Is there a character outside of your main players, of course, that you're really excited for readers to meet for the first time? If I were to say, you know, the character that like the buyers are the, the three main players that really, you know, are Emma, David and Atticus and kind of stay that way. I think the character that I'm interested for people to meet is this character, Yam, who is, you know, 4,000 years old and he's been searching for the armor. And he was the son of Noah who did not get on the boat when the flood came. And so he kind of like, which is back to ancient Samaria and what he wants for the world. And he kind of becomes David's, sort of surrogate father and i think he's unsuspecting it's not a place you would think to find a mentor who might become an evil mentor digging back into that part of sort of ancient myth you know with with the with the flood and so i i'm excited to see what people think about that you know adam before i let you go obviously you know people are thinking okay i still want to know more about this book. I still want to try and find out, you know, where, where, where this, what kind of lane this is kind of in. So when you were creating this story, did you draw any inspiration from any other stories that you've read or that you've seen over the course of time that you enjoyed? You know, I, I, I don't know that I, there was a story that did it. I think I took two things when making this. I said, you know, I took a personal story about a friend who passed in high school due to bullying. There was a suicide. I took that personal experience and then I merged it with ancient Sumerian myth, right? Like how can that personal experience play out with, you know, when connected to this fantastic, ancient and fantastical thing was really where it began. And I, and there wasn't necessarily a book that did it or a story that I think maybe there's small pieces of it. Like Emma, you know, inside of track, I done many music videos. One of the bands I've done a lot for this band called sick puppies their bassist is a Japanese girl, half Japanese girl named Emma. And this Emma is very much like her. So I would think that those are some real life inspirations that, uh, that I pulled from. Uh, and one thing, you know, I wanted to do James with the offering was to make a campaign that also created a product that I would want. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I think, you know, like you're saying, uh, there's a lot of pages out there because the stories, you know, it's going to be a 200 page book. It's, you know, who tries that in the first comic? You know, right. <laughs> um, it, right, it's it's eight it's eight issues, and the first one is thirty three pages, and the second one is twenty seven. The others are all twenty two, but all come together, and it's this hardcover book with a slipcase. Because I think you know, I collect comics, I read a lot, 
And the things that I always love to keep around, because every few years, sometimes I do an overhaul and take stuff to Goodwill or give stuff away. I never give away my hardcovers. Right. And I wanted that experience. That's what I liked about backing books on Indiegogo was you could get something that you can't get in the store. I remember backing a book early on and it came and it was just a trade paperback. Nothing wrong with that. But it's just like, man, that I could have just gone to the store and get, got that. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to make something that you couldn't get someplace else. And hence why, why you know, the offering is you know, the digital issues or it's this hardcover or the slipcase, this beautiful collector's item. Um, and so, and, and many people at the beginning, when I, I launched a campaign and people would talk to me uh, on Twitter and say, like, whoa, dude, why did you just do like this? double? <laughs> <laughs> what are you thinking? And, and I was like, well, you know, it's because that's what I would want. Right. Uh, maybe second time around out, there will be a soft cover option uh, in the future uh, for the uh, for the next book. But I'm glad I made this thing because I think that uh, anyone who gets it, it will live with them for a long time. Well, you've still got a chance to jump on board. You have until Wednesday, June the 17th. Is that right, Adam, to, to get on board with the 8th? That's right. That's right. Okay, so Wednesday, June the 17th. And you can always get more information. The link is up there as well at failed superhero on social media you're going to want to follow him anyway you're going to want to be a part of this and check out this multifaceted amazing story it's called the eighth it's from this guy right here it's adam lawson thank you so much for joining me this week you bet to me when i first read the eighth i thought to myself you know this is a good example of just how many great indie comics could be out there that you might not know about and the fact that you might never know about a story that's as good as this it's almost criminal. So I thought I've got to talk about this. I've got to let you know about it because if you haven't backed the eighth yet, you can follow the Indiegogo campaign. Make sure you check them out on social media at Phil Superhero and find out how you can still back the eighth and get your digital issues, get the hardcover like Adam Lawson was saying. You will definitely not be disappointed. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Adam Lawson for joining me this week and the folks at Serial Box for that clip of Marvel's Jessica Jones playing with fire. If you want information on all this stuff, I'll help you out at downandnerdypodcast.com. Also, follow along on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram and at downandnerdy on Facebook. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. And be good to your fellow nerds.